Welcome to the Clemson Dubcast. It is Thursday, December 14th, and later today at TigerIllustrated.com, we have some insight into that time that Jeff Scott spent two days in the home of Chris Rump and his family in Gainesville, Florida, trying to recruit him to come to Clemson. This was in 2017, shortly after Clemson won the national title, and Chris Rump was an assistant at Florida. So check out TigerIllustrated.com for that fascinating story. My good friends Blake Smith and Brooke Archenhold have been part of the podcast since the beginning, way back in August of 2018. They have an accomplished team of personal injury attorneys at Parm Smith and Archenhold based in Greenville. They are Clemson people and their skillful attorneys have decades of experience in complicated litigation matters, taking a special interest in medical malpractice, nursing home abuse and neglect, car accident cases that have left the individuals involved in serious trouble. For a free consultation at Parm Smith and Archenhold, call 864-990-4581 or online at parhamlaw.com. That's P-A-R-H-A-M law.com. Upstate foodies, want to take a moment to talk to you about our favorite taco spot, Willie Taco. Five locations across the upstate. This award-winning team has been serving up fresh taco fusion for a solid decade now. The chefs at Willie Taco utilize the freshest, most creative, and sometimes unexpected ingredients in their kitchens. Come see why Southern Living, Garden and Gun, and Food and Wine Magazine are raving about Willie Taco and their signature offerings, such as their Southern Tide, Chris avocado, Nashville hot chicken tacos, literally flavors you will not find anywhere else, folks. And don't forget about the cocktails, super fresh margaritas, ice cold cerveza, and over 80 tequilas served up daily from behind the bar. So don't wait, folks. Your Willy Taco Familia is ready to serve you up their twist on funky fresh fusion. It's the Willy way. Solero Communications, formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions simplified payments. They make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solutions, you can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. Okay, I've interviewed Rick Stockstill several times over the years, but never in this type of extended format. This is great stuff uh, on so many levels. Hope you enjoy. Okay, joined by Rick Stockstill, whose name is quite familiar to a lot of Clemson folks. How you doing, sir? I'm great, Larry. Appreciate you having me on here. and hope you guys are doing good. Of course, of course. Well, first of all, uh, sorry about the parting with Middle Tennessee. I know it has to be tough just when you've devoted that much of your life um, to that school. So I, I don't know if there's anything you want to share or say just in reflection on that. No, I was, uh, you know, obviously it was hard. I've been fired. I've been on staffs, you know, there at Clemson three times when we got fired and uh, but this was the first time in my professional career that I had been fired. So um, that was tough. And, uh, you know, nobody wants to get fired. Um, I devoted, like you said, you know, 18 years here. I gave this program, these players, everybody, my heart and soul for 18 years. And, uh, 
you know, we had a lot, a lot of great moments. And, uh, you know, when you, like anything, when you can't go out on your terms, it's always hard. But this was my 41st year as a college coach. So I understand the profession, uh, you know, so it was disappointing because, you know, it wasn't, we had a, we had a tough year, you know, we lost to two top 10 teams, the first two games of the season, Alabama and Missouri. And we had five, one score losses, uh, you know, so we didn't have a great year. Uh, we were coming off two great years, you know, the previous two years and, um, it wasn't broke. I just needed to fix a couple things and, uh, obviously I didn't get the time to fix it. So, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, just proud of what we accomplished here. Uh, you know, so, but to answer your question, yeah, Larry was, it was a tough deal and, you know, and, uh, still want to coach. So, uh, but now I was, uh, I'm, I'm proud of what we accomplished here at middle Tennessee. I, I, I don't. I, I follow Miss Middle Tennessee only superficially, um, so you have to pardon me. But I'm just. I've got y'all's y'all's schedule, y'all's results from 2023 pulled up here on my computer, and I'm not saying this in a brown nosing way at all. But I look at the I look at the results, and I don't see anything that says, "Oh God, that's bad." Like fireable type. I mean, I just I see. <laughs> I say a four-point loss at Missouri seven days after you went to Tuscaloosa. Like, um, yeah. and, and like you said, I see a lot of other close games. Um, I'm just—it's hard for me to really wrap my mind around fired after uh, in the season after you went at Miami by uh, by two touchdowns, and like you said, you have a really good good year the year before. It's hard for me to really comprehend it yeah you know it was and we always play you know at least two power five teams sometimes some years three you know because that's that's our way that was middle tennessee's way of raising money you know we'd get two million from alabama a million and a half you know from missouri you know so in theory you know yeah we beat miami the year before you know we had you were eight, eight and four, or eight and five. We beat, uh, you know, San Diego State in the Hawaii Bowl. But in real, realistically, if you look at it, you know, we play a ten-game schedule. You know, because on paper you're not supposed to beat Alabama and you're not supposed to beat Missouri. You know, and we've beaten Missouri before. We beat them in 2016, but. You know, we've had a lot of Power 5 wins, but on paper you're not supposed to win those games. So you're looking at where, you know, everybody – not everybody else, but the Power 5 guys, they play a 12-game schedule. So they got a better chance of getting six wins, you know, to get in a bowl game <clears throat> where we're basically playing a 10-game schedule. Now you got to win, you know – six games, you got to win 60% of your games just to get, you know, bowl eligible where, uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it just makes it tougher. 
it as you schedule these games over the years, uh, as you said, that's what an athletic department does for money. I don't know if your part of you is cynical, but it was a part of you during that time thinking, "Wow, well, if this turns sour, there could be some irony here because this money that I'm that we're bringing in to, you know." to add to our coffers could end up being money to pay my buyout if I don't, if I get let go. No, I never, I never thought of it that way. Uh, uh, you know, so, uh, it was, you know, to me, I always looked at it, Larry, as this is what we're doing. So we, we've, and, and this is not sour grapes. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not that kind of guy, but, you know, we've had the worst facilities, you know, in the conference, uh, we still dress our locker room still in the basement of the basketball gym. Uh, you know, we share a, a weight room, we share a training room. Uh, you know, we, we got, we don't have very good facilities. And now that we just started, uh, this started this past summer of uh, they're building a, a $60 million uh, facility and it's going to be phenomenal. It'll be great. And, uh, but long overdue and you go back to Clemson, you know, when, uh, you know, Tommy Bowden was there, Tommy, you know, what facilities we had and really more Tommy Bowden. Cause when Tommy West was there, the arms race of facilities hadn't really taken off yet. But when Tommy Bowden was there and you heard how much he talked about, the need for facilities at Clemson when Tommy West got fired at Memphis, you know, he said the same thing, you know, they got to make a commitment to facilities and you look at it and and Dabo's done a phenomenal job. I don't want to take anything away from him. Clemson, those players, assistant coaches have done a phenomenal job, but you know, their climb kind of started when, you know, Terry Don and, you know, the facility stuff started getting built. Uh, Memphis, when Tommy left, when Tommy got fired, they started building facilities there. And then Memphis became one of the top group of five conferences, top uh, teams in the group of five. You know, so there's such a, sometimes, not always, but a lot of times there's a, such a correlation uh, you know, with, you know, facilities that, you know, now they want NIL money, but five years ago, that 10 years ago, they wanted facilities. And to me, once we get facilities here, <clears throat> then, you know, I, I have no doubt that this program, you know, will, will take off. It is, there is a similarity there. You mentioned Tommy Bowden. Uh, the push for facilities improvements began under him and the actual wheels were turning on it and the West End Zone facility, which I, I'm sure you're, I'm guessing you're familiar with. Um, they moved into it in 2009. Tommy never got a chance to uh, occupy that office in the new facility that he spent years helping raise funds for. Yeah, that's we we played Clemson in two thousand and nine. Yep, 
And uh, so I, I did see it. That's the last time I've been to Clemson. Um, but so I did. And so kind of it's very, you know, kind of how paths cross. But, you know, Coach Bowden did, you know, push for that and never got a chance to, you know, to utilize it. Tommy West pushed for it at Memphis, never got a chance to utilize it. Rick Stock still pushed for it at Middle Tennessee, you know, is never going to get a chance to utilize it. So, um, but Clemson is better because of Tommy Bowden, you know, pushing for facilities. Memphis is better because of Tommy West pushing for facilities. Middle Tennessee will be better because Stock pushed for facilities. I'll also, I can remember Jack Leggett. You could say the same thing about him. He gets fired at Clemson in, I guess that was 15. I could be getting the year wrong. But I remember a few weeks later, he came – well, not a few weeks, but maybe a couple months or a good while later. Monty – he came back to watch a couple of practices when Monty Lee was the coach. And I remember sitting with him uh, in in the bleachers, in the seats on the first base side, and he couldn't stop looking behind him at this – brand new sparkling new operations facility that he had spent years fundraising for, but he had net, he wasn't going to get a chance to occupy that office either. So it's just a, it's one of the, uh, I guess maybe one of the just cruel realities that can happen if you coach for a long time that um, maybe a common thread there, regardless of even the sport. Yeah. It, and it goes back to, <clears throat> I guess my last year at Clemson was, Three, two thousand three, two or three, yeah. And I used to always say my brother played at Clemson when they won the national championship there in '81. And in 2000, I was saying 2001 that if my brother could remember his locker combination, <laughs> he could he could go into Jersey, you know, and because we still had the same things, you know, so the old metal lockers and everything. And, you know, it's just amazing, you know, the transformation of Clemson now. It's just, you know, they're, you know, I've been to several places and, you know, it's hard pressed to find a better facility than what Clemson has now. You know, it's funny. I had Ellis Johnson on the podcast a few weeks ago and you were, y'all were on, what's that? Yeah. Y'all were on the staff together here. Yeah, yeah, Eli's a good friend of mine, yeah. yes, sir. Hey, but he was marveling because he comes up here on a pretty regular basis. His son is a walk-on, Charlie, and he also, Ellis, has some good, uh, I think, some good friends up here that he visits on a pretty regular basis. And so he was marveling at the facilities and saying, hey, it wasn't like that when I was there. And he said, and I want to ask you this, it's something I'd never heard. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> Go ahead. No, go. The, you you the, go ahead. What the, what? the horse arena? The, the livestock arena. <laughs> yeah. Eli, Tommy West, the head coach, and it's pouring <laughs> down rain. It's August. It's pouring down rain for a week, and we can't get out and practice. So Tommy takes us over to the <laughs> livestock deal. We're. I knew he was going to say that, and we're practicing. And they got, you know, horse crap and all that stuff, you know, and Eli walking out and he said, if this gets out and anybody knows we're out here practicing, we'll never sign a recruit. (laughs) 
Well, that's what I asked him. I said, How, I, I said, I've been around here a long time, but I haven't heard that story. And he's like, yeah, we were trying to recruit. We were we were scared to death that that that, that the recruit would hear about it. <laughs> yeah, that is wild. So so about, yeah. at, at that time, you would the options if there was inclement weather. I don't think the track facility was there at the time, was it? The, no, it wasn't anything. So you go to Jervy, the Jervy Gym. Was a volleyball or the yeah Jervy Gym there? We'd go in there, and and the floor was so bad you couldn't you couldn't. I mean, back then, you still, you know, hit and everything like that, but you, uh, it was a little bit harder. But, uh, yeah, you just, it was a glorified walkthrough. Wow. And it's crazy. I remember, I mean, you know, of, of course, Terry Don Phillips deserves all the credit in the world yeah. for his identification of Dabo as a, as this, Jim, uh, in the making that really not a lot of other people saw. And of course the hire of Mike Noonan, who just won his second national title in three years in soccer. Brad Brownell was a Terry Don hire as has a, probably his best team right now, but Terry Don in fairness, didn't, (laughs) didn't see the value of an indoor practice facility. And I remember him telling me, and this is when Dabo was pushing for it. I remember Terry Don saying, now, Larry, why would I want to spend, and I don't know how much the dollar figure was, $10 million on something we're going to use 14 times in a year. And the reality is they use that thing all the time for not just football purposes. But um, yeah. I think you have a lot of wisdom now looking back at just how important an indoor facility can be, whether you're at Clemson or anywhere. Yeah. And I think, you know, 10 years ago, 15, whatever years ago, everybody thought you used an indoor facility, you know, for when it rained or if you're up North, you know, and it's cold and, you know, it's snowing, you know, but what people don't understand is, like a basketball player can go in and shoot basketball year round. A football player, you know, a quarterback, a receiver, they can go in there in January at, you know, eight o'clock at night and throw. Uh, you know, other sports, like you said, can go in there and utilize it. But, you know, football players, it doesn't have to be just during the season, it's part of their development. You know, quarterbacks, receivers, just go in there and run routes on your own as a receiver. You can work on so many things. Uh, an offensive lineman can go in and work on things that you can't do outside like a basketball player. You know, you you give the basketball player the key and he can go in there at 6 in the morning or at 10 o'clock at night on a Friday and shoot. And, you know, a football player never had those options or no the, the, the ability to do that if he didn't have an indoor facility. I I always like to ask people to go back to before it was obvious Dabo was a star in the profession when there were still questions about him and say, Hey, what did you, what was your opinion of Dabo at the time in 2008, 2009, 2010, before he really got things rolling? So I'm curious I don't think y'all know each other that well. Maybe I'm wrong. Am I, is that accurate? 
no, I mean, we no. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. You know, I would. I wouldn't say we're we know each other great, but you know, he replaced me when I went yeah. to East Carolina. He yeah. he took my place. You know, I and I'm guessing because I I think I had met him earlier. I mean, when he was at Alabama, uh, I think I, I don't, but I think I have because we had visited Alabama when Coach Stallings was still there. Uh, Woody, we, we went up there and visited as a staff, um, you know, so, but no, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't say I know him well, but I, you know, I, I know him knowing. So, so as of the 2009 opener, that was his, that was to start his first full season as head coach. What was your take just from the outside looking in? Because, I think your opinion's important. It's it's interesting just because of how rooted you had been at Clemson and your familiarity with the culture and with their sort of walking in the wilderness for a couple of decades after they were prominent in the last, in the late 80s, early 90s. What was your, can you remember what your, sort of what your, I guess, feel for it was or your take on the Dabo hire, your take on just him as a coach before he, you know, became known as a future Hall of Fame coach? I, you know, it's probably hard to hard to say or hard to describe because he had just, it was just getting started. In 09 was, was only my fourth year, I think six, seven, eight. Yeah, my fourth year as a head coach. And I, I remember <clears> – <throat> You know, pregame there, you know, when you head coaches get together and talk, you know, I remember he said, not too bad for two old wide receiver coaches, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and uh, I've always remembered that. But um, no, I, I, again, it's just, you, you want to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and say that, yeah, I knew he was going to be, you know, ultra successful or anything like that, because heck, you never know. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I've always, you know, and I guess he was there cause he was there, I guess in five or six, seven years as an assistant, you know, so, you know, he had a, he had a good relationship with the players, you know, with the administration and all that. And, you know, he just needed an opportunity and he got his opportunity and has done a marvelous job, you know, with that opportunity. So, but for me to sit back here, you know, 15 years later and say, yeah, I knew that, you know, it's so many things have to, you know, hit right, you know, and, you know, he got the facilities and got good players and got good coaches and, he did a great job and, or has done a great job, you know, so I'm, I'm happy for him. I'm happy for Clemson, um, you know, and just, you know, I'm, I'm happy for, you know, I still got, you know, a handful of friends uh, on that staff and uh, in the community there. So I'm just happy for I'm happy for Dabo and I'm happy for the Clemson people. I think it was, several years ago five or six years ago maybe it was after one of the 
national championship seasons. I think I, I was writing a book on one of those seasons and a, a fact sort of stopped me in my tracks as I was trying to tell the Dabo story and just sort of the the progression of how he got to where he is. And um, I'm like, wait a minute. If Stockstill doesn't go to East Carolina, then that would have probably been a third a third year for Dabo out of coaching. And if you're out of coaching for three years, it's really, really hard to get back in it. And so had you might be the reason not only that Dabo is at Clemson, but that Dabo is a coach. <laughs> does that does any of that not does it does that does that make sense to you? I think it makes more sense in today's world than it did 20 years ago. Um, I, I think back then, in today, today, if you're out of coaching for a year, it's hard to get back in, very hard. Um, back then, you know, it wasn't um, – it wasn't – as common because you back then you didn't have all the analysts. You didn't have 10 coaches. You only had nine coaches, you know? So I think 20 years ago, 20, whatever years ago it was that you had a better chance of getting back in the business. I mean, you had a better chance of getting back in it because people understood that there weren't as many, you know, opportunities for you to get in. It was harder to get back in it. So I don't know if two, three, four, five years out of it, uh, you know, was, would have been as bad then as being out of it, you know, three, four years in today's time. I guess part of that context is, is Dabo – the two years that he was out of coaching, he wasn't just sort of sitting on his couch, you know, sending resumes and just dying to get back in it. He was actually um, establishing himself as a really good commercial real estate uh, broker. And so he, my take has been for for several years since I came to that realization um, five or six years ago is that had you not left – my opinion is Dabo would probably be one of the top 10 most successful commercial real estate people in the world. He, he would have been great at something had it not been coaching. It would have probably been commercial real estate, I would imagine. Most coaches uh, that are good coaches are successful or can be successful in whatever they do. And you've heard stories of guys that, you know, coached for a long time and got out of it and became the best at whatever they're doing now. And guys that were good at, you know, selling cars or commercial real estate or whatever, and they get into coaching uh, because there's so many similarities, you know, between coaching and athletics in the real world that if you have the <clears> – <throat> the drive and the, the work ethic and the passion that whatever you're doing, you're going to be successful. So 
there's so many, and, and you've heard it all your life, and I heard it all my life, you know, the similarities of what it takes to be successful in athletics and how it translates to the real world. If we're just sitting and looking at your at your bio, it says Stockstill leaves Clemson in 2002 for offensive coordinator job at East Carolina. I think it's natural for most folks to say, huh, why did you do that? Can we can we revisit that and sort of go back to that moment in time and and sort of paint the picture? I mean, obviously, coming off a rough game against uh, Texas Tech and Mike Texas Le- Tech. Mike Leach and all those cats in the Tangerine Bowl, but I'm just um, what what are your recollections and what can you share for what was going through your mind as you evaluated what your uh, what to do? Yeah, I was. I came to Clemson, you know, as a quarterback coach. Coach of quarterbacks for five or so years, then was a receiver coach. And I, I had a, a, a desire to be a head coach one day. And back then, they weren't, you had to be an offensive coordinator. They weren't hiring guys that hadn't been offensive defensive coordinators before. And yeah, I was the co coordinator and called plays. and. 95 for Tommy West. We had a good year and all that, but, you know, I just felt for me to have the opportunity to, to be a head coach, I needed to, you know, to, to step out of my comfort zone, maybe a little bit. I'd been there 14 years. I'd been offered jobs, not coordinator jobs before. And again, things are so much different today than what they were then back then that uh, I think it almost got to the point that when people said when they had openings, you know, stocks, never, he's not going to leave at Clemson. He's not going to leave Clemson. He's been there forever. You know, he's not going to leave. And, you know, I wanted, like I said, I wanted to be a head coach. Uh, and I had a chance to go there as the offensive coordinator and uh, coach the quarterbacks, and you know uh, that's why that's why I left because I thought it would help me down the road be a head coach. Was Brad Scott the OC here at the time? Yeah, yeah, it was, yes, because Michael Kane had Michael Kane had already left, right? No, Mo Kane uh, was let go after the '04 season. Good golly, I'm old. <laughs> uh, well, yeah okay but uh maybe okay maybe it was okay I, I just i know that bowden made some decisions after the he did a reshuffling after the 03 season moving scott was, all right so 99 99 and 2000 it was rodriguez then 2001 and two i bet it was it, was, it had to be either brad or uh or or mike Okay. Was it uh, was it a hard decision? Yes. Yeah. You know, because you know, my kids were young then. I think Brent was first or second grade. Mm. Emily, my daughter, was you know three or four, or whatever, four or five. You know, Sarah. I mean, we've been there, like I said, forever, and. uh you know, but I felt like I needed 
to take that step out of my comfort zone. And, uh, and the thing about it, I was there 14 years, but it felt like, you know, I had four different jobs because one year with, with coach Ford, you know, four years with coach Hatfield, five years with Tommy West, you know, four years with coach Bowden, you know, it's like, you know, you're at the same place, but you're learning, you know, four different ways of doing things, you know, with the four different coaches, you know, so I didn't move, but it felt like I had moved, you know, from a philosophical standpoint of what I was learning. So, but yeah, it was, it was, it was a tough deal or not a tough deal, but a tough decision. Steve Logan, he had, he had been let go at ECU, right? Yes. And who was the successor? John Thompson. John, John, John Thompson. Uh, you know, he was a defensive coordinator at LSU at Florida. I think he had come from Florida there, but he'd been around as a defensive coordinator. And you were in at ECU for one year before going to South Carolina. South Carolina. And yes. was that just a better opportunity? Well, here we weren't very good. Yeah. at East Carolina and the we had a first year head coach and the athletic director uh resigned in the summer going into that year so and then the president we we're playing University of Miami Hurricanes and uh we're getting off the bus to go to the game and we get this thing or somebody says the president just got fired so I'm thinking about it, you know, here we are with a first-year head coach. The athletic director who hired him is no longer there. The president is no longer there. You know, it doesn't look like we're going to be very good the next year. So I said, I'm going to try to find the first job I can south, you know, you know that I can after the season. And so uh, – Coach Lou, Lou Holt let let a bunch of guys, not a bunch of guys, but a handful of guys go after that year. And Skip, his son, called me. I've known Skip forever and asked if I'd be interested. And I said yes. And, you know, I went down there and met with uh, Coach Holtz and uh, Coach McGee, who was the athletic director at the time. So when you've pulled your kids out of Clemson – and you're in East Carolina, East Carolina for one season, and then you're like, I gotta, I gotta figure out somewhere else to go. What is, what are those conversations like? I mean, can't be easy, you know, just being that sort of moving around and bouncing around again after one year. Right. It's, um, you know, and, and that's what I talked to to Coach Holtz about. I said, you know, I was at um, Clemson for so long, which he knew. And then I go to East Carolina and now I'm moving again and, you know, talk to him. And at that time, that's when assistant coaches started getting two and three year contracts. Um, you know, and I said, I told him, I said, at first I told him, no, I said, no, I don't want it. And he, he and coach McGee, the athletic director called me back the next day and, you know, said 
Cause I, in part of it, Larry, and I'll just be honest, you know, I wasn't, I, I, I didn't, I would, I had given Clemson so much of my life and competed against South Carolina. And I know there's been millions, but a, a lot of coaches that have coached both at Clemson and, and South Carolina. I, so I struggled with that part of it. You know, I told Sarah, my wife, no, I don't know if I can do this because I've competed against South Carolina for so long. Uh, I don't know if I can do it. And I told coach, no. And then, like I said, they called me back the next day. And what will it take? And I said, if I'm going to do this coach, I need a three-year contract. It wasn't about money or anything like that. I said, I need a three-year contract just because I need some stability with my family. And, uh, so they did that, and that was probably the major reason, you know, for going to South Carolina was just the stability of, you know, having a multi-year contract. Even with that stability, was it still hard or weird or all the above, both of the above, I guess? It wasn't hard, but it was weird, you know, because uh, I would recruited just about every school in the state of South Carolina, you know, over 14 years at Clemson. And then now you're walking in with a different logo on your shirt. You know, it was a little different. I still had great friends at Clemson, you know, with Brad Scott and Burton Burns and all those guys, you know, I still had a great friendship with them because that's never going to change no matter what logo you wear on your chest. But it was weird. You know, uh, but not not to the sense that it was hard, uh, because at the end of the day, you know, you're you're still coaching, you're still trying to impact kids and uh, change their lives. Okay, so that's your job, and obviously, lots of coaches have gone back and forth, not just in this rivalry, but others. Uh, you know, your loyalty only goes so far as your you know who's paying you, but for your kids. I mean, I'm assuming they still had some Clemson gear <laughs> after just one year of being away from Clemson. Uh, what was that like for them and your wife, for that matter? Um, you know, for my daughter, it wasn't any. It wasn't. You know, she didn't know because, like I said, when she left Clemson, she's uh, three yeah. years old, and she doesn't. Four years old, she doesn't know. You know, if what she doesn't understand. But my son Brent, who you know, was that would come to practice with, you know, Tommy West and then Tommy Bowden and is always, you know, at the offices and is always on the sideline of games. He understood, you know, like we'd be in the backyard throwing balls and I would never tell him, you know, run a post, you know, or run a takeoff. You know, I'd always signal to him, you know, what our signals were and, you know, one of the signals was, you know, you tap your head and, you know, that's, we called it Gamecock killer. That's when, uh, <laughs> you know, when, when Rod, when Rod caught the, the yes. ball there and in 2001 or 2000 there, uh, you know, so in, you know, I, I would signal him something. He said post, or I'd signal him, tap my head and he'd go Gamecock killer. So he knew, <laughs> He knew that he he understood it, and 
you know, obviously he's a coach now and everything. So, but I, I explained to him, he said, dad, how you can, I said, Brent, this is part of the profession and, um, you know, we'll come up with some new signals. <laughs> and it, it was probably good for Sarah because, you know, she maintained her friendships there in, in that she had with her girlfriends in Clemson and families and whatnot. And, uh, our neighbors, and you know she met, and so she was. It, it it was easy for her because it was getting her back closer to her friends uh, at Clemson, and you know, really a little bit closer to her family in Florida, also. So that '04 season, your first, obviously in Columbia. Do you remember when you first got the inclination, or maybe the hint that oh, Lou might be. Lou might be about to hang it up. This might be it for him. Uh, probably mid-season. You started hearing things. Um, you know, coach never came in and said, this is my last one or anything like that. But about mid-season, uh, you know, it was. And then it leaked out the, the week the week of the Clemson game. But, Probably about mid-season is when you started hearing, hearing rumors about it. When you're ready for a complete renovation in your home or business, open the door to more with Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Their local experience team will totally transform any room space from beautiful floor coverings to construction to finished details. Harris handles every step of your renovation process, whether it's a kitchen or living room or an industrial or educational setting, like some of the positively stunning work they've done at Clemson University. Go to discoverharris.com and experience a total renovation transformation from Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Another loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parm Smith and Archenthold. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate law. Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864-326-3507. Want to share a quick word about Founders Federal Credit Union? If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Its office is located beside the Walmart neighborhood market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. For more information, go to foundersfcu.com. So two years after your last game at Death Valley, I guess. Um, Y'all beat South Carolina in 2002 with Charlie Whitehurst, I think, um, making some big plays in the second half. You're back. You're back in Death Valley for the infamous brawl game. I, I still have vivid memories of not just the brawl, but of just how charged the environment was from the very beginning with the South Carolina players running to the hill to I guess greet, for lack of a better word, Clemson, and then just from that point on, it was it was sort of on. It just felt like a it felt you could feel it brewing the whole time. What are your sort of snapshots that you think back to, and just the vibe that that you sort of recall as as you as you think back to that game and that event? I guess. Well, when I guess to start to the beginning, you know. Uh, 
when they ran, when our players ran down the hill and waved them down and all that kind of stuff, I, uh, I turned to one of our ops guys and I said, these boys don't know what they just did. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, so, um, that, and then, you know, the game was close and all that. And then the unfortunate deal, how it, with that fight there, I've got, you know, I, I got my opinion on how it was started and, uh, you know, what went on and everything on that. Cause I was, cause Brent was with me. My son was on with me on the sideline. So, um, I, I've got vivid, you know, opinions and memories of it. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's hear them. <laughs> well, I mean, it's third down there and, uh, you know, we throw past Savelle, sprints, either sprints or scrambles out, and it's incomplete. And, you know, so whatever Clemson's punt block team is coming on the field, our punt team is coming on the field. Clemson's defense is still on the field. South Carolina's offense is still on the field. So you got 40 guys, you know, coming on the field. And somebody sees somebody push and all that, and then just then it just you know breaks loose. And I remember, uh, you know, first thing I did, I got Brent. You know, I found him, and we stayed on the numbers on the visitor sideline. We were on the numbers, and I I didn't try to go out there because I was worried about him. And I, Ty Hill, who I recruited. Uh, I got him and I grabbed him. I said, Ty, stay out of it. So it's Ty Hill, me and Brent, we're just standing on the numbers, you know, kind of watching, talking about, I said, this is crazy, you know? And I said, don't go out there, Ty, don't, don't do it. And he didn't. And uh, I tried to get Yusuf Kelly, uh, you know, cause he was, you know, involved in it. I yelled at him. I said, Keith, you know, and, uh, but I couldn't get him. And, uh, I tried to get some of the guys that I knew to, to stay out of it. Cause, and then it just, you know, moved on down to the hill and all that kind of stuff. It was just a, a sad day and, um, you know, just very disappointing, uh, because it cost both teams an opportunity to play in a bowl game. And, um, you know, so, but uh, the thing I remember about it is just both punt team, punt block and punt teams, everybody's on the field and, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, our guys, you know, the night before, you know, was the that fight, the Detroit Pistons game and all that stuff. They We come down Saturday morning and that's all everybody's talking about. You know, do you see that melee, da-da-da-da-da? And so you wonder if, that's logged into both Clemson players and South Carolina players. Cause I know Clemson people players watched it, you know, and just, you never know, you know, I've always believed, you know, by the saying garbage in garbage out. And if you're listening to garbage, if you're watching garbage, you know, eventually garbage is going to come out in your actions and, uh, you, you watch that garbage Friday night, you know, did it 
come out Saturday afternoon. What about, and refresh my memory here, if you don't mind, um, by game time, it was already known that Lou was out and that Spurrier was coming. Can you, can you uh, enlighten on your, your memory of when and how Lou informed the staff and the players (laughs) that he was, that he was hanging it up? I don't think he ever informed the players. I didn't, we didn't, I never knew about coach Spurrier coming until Sunday or Monday after the game. Okay. I don't think anybody knew that, Uh, but it leaked out, I think Wednesday or Thursday that, you know, coach Holtz was going to retire. I don't recall him ever addressing the team prior to the game. I think the players, all assumed uh, that he was done, but I don't think he ever addressed it. And then he never addressed it with us until Sunday morning uh, after that game. Wow. As a, as a staff. That's kind of fascinating. Do you think yeah, – he, he always said that he, that he will be remembered with Woody Hayes because he loved Ohio State. said he'd always be remembered – by Woody Hayes, that his last game ended with a fight with Clemson. Wow! Because Woody Hayes, the Gator Bowl deal, and uh, and then his last game, you know, the fight there with Clemson. Do you think that South Carolina's players, knowing and believing that hey, our coach is gone? that that contributed at all, you know, combined with what you said about the garbage going in with the NBA stuff contributed to the, to the, to the just demeanor at all? No, sir. Not, not a bit. No, I I don't think it had any, you know, our coach in here, what are they going to do to us? You know, I I don't believe that one bit uh, because, you know, and I'm not going to sit here and say, Clemson started it or Clemson didn't it or South Carolina started it because both squads were equally guilty. And, uh, you know, it it never had to get to the point that it got to, uh, you know, had both teams had a little bit more, you know, self-control. So I don't want to – I'm not going to sit here and say it was, you know, South Carolina's fault or Clemson's fault. It was both teams' fault. And – just left a black eye in college football. You know, like I said, it cost both teams a, a shot to go to a bowl game. And uh, you review the film. You know, I still got I still got the film because uh, they said something like this was the 20 year anniversary of it or something. I saw something on ESPN or something during the season that uh, 20 years ago today is. Uh, when that fight happened, you know, back in November. Uh, so I think both sides, you know, no, nobody, nobody uh, came out of that game a winner. I mean, Clemson won the game, obviously, but, you know, from a national perception, it was, you know, it, it didn't help either team. Can we go back to your, the hill, the hill scene or confrontation or whatever, and you said, they don't know what they just did. Can I get you to elaborate on that and just sort of? 
Well, I mean, I've been at Clemson when other teams had waved you down the hill, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, I've been, a, you know, places, uh, you know, where, you know, you, you look at the old, <clears throat> the old Miami Florida state games, you know, when, uh, you know, teams would come out and at the, you know, and where the horse is going to throw down the spear and just, it ignites everything and just, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I don't want to say disrespect, you know, when you, you, you do something like that to a, uh, to an opponent, but, you know, I've been at Clemson enough to know that, you know, how sacred and how much pride they take in running down the hill that, uh, you don't need to make him run down that hill any faster. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so, uh, I just, you know, I told my buddy there and, uh, I said, uh, these boys don't know what they just did. You worked one season under Spurrier. What did you learn about him, about working for him? Just uh, what type of insight did you get from that, that, that you couldn't get sort of when you're just, you know, watching him from afar? Absolutely loved it. It was uh, as enjoyable of a year that I've, I've had in a long time. Um, just his, uh, openness, you know, how he communicated with the staff, how he communicated with the media, how open he was, uh, uh, just, you know, how he talked to the players, you know, you know, he was, when coaches say, I believe in competition, the best player is going to play. A lot of coaches say that, but not always works that way. It worked that way with him. And, uh, I did, I had a, I had a blast. I, I really, I learned a lot and, uh, you know, I think he's perceived, in the media as a little bit arrogant, a little bit cocky. Uh, but really he's, he's so confident, uh, that it's misinterpreted, you know, the, his confidence is misinterpreted as arrogance and cocky. Uh, and I, I just, uh, it, it was a lot, a lot of fun and, uh, how he coached, how he, how, coasting games, how he coached in practice. Uh, I, I just, um, it, it, it was a really, really fun year for me. I guess he wasn't big on locker room speeches before a game or at halftime. What are your, what's your recollection of that side of him? Just sort of the motivational part. Um, you know, I've always believed, you know, and I didn't get this from him, but I've always believed that if a coach has to give you a motivational speech five minutes before you run out of that locker room, he's done a bad job Sunday through Friday, you know, that you, you get him ready Sunday through Friday and, uh, Saturday, you know, pregame speeches are, you know, more reminders. Uh, and that's what he was. He was more of, you know, a reminder, this is what we talked about. This is how we're going to, what we have to do to win the game. This is what we're going to do. 
and uh, so he was more, you know, of that than you know the fire and brimstone. What about his offensive mind and schematics and the way he moved the pieces around? Did you were you able to sort of appreciate once you were able to go sort of behind the curtain with 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 him as a as a schemer? Yeah, I, I thought one of his greatest strengths as a play caller was his ability ability to adapt and change during the course of the game. Where you go in, you might think, you know, this route concept is going to be really good and you get in the game and it's not. And we put something together that we didn't even practice. And he had the ability you know, to do it, to communicate it with us as coaches and then the staff, I mean, the players and uh, have success with it during the course of the game. You know, so I, I just thought his ability to adapt during the course of the game, make adjustments was one of his strengths. What do you, what's next for you? I mean, I guess you don't know what's next, but what would you desire to be next if, if I could, if I could add it? I want to, I still want to coach because I know I can add him. I can add value and I can still impact these players. You know, I'm, I'll be 66 in a couple of weeks. You know, is somebody out there going to take a chance on me as a position coach? I don't know. I'm hopeful somebody will take a chance on me as an analyst because all these power five schools now have got a hundred analysts. And, and I hope, you know, I'm trying to let everybody get through signing date next week and, you know, Christmas, and then I'm going to start calling. And I'm hopeful somebody will, you know, give me an opportunity to, to stay in this business. Uh, you know, I'm realistic about my age. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm still young. I still have the fire. I still run. You know, I still chase them kids on the field. I'm still enthusiastic about it. I'm still passionate about it. Uh, so I know I can, you know, I know I can add value. And I'm just hopeful that somebody will give me an opportunity to, to be an analyst on their staff, if not a position coach. One of the things that I really sort of dawned on me, or I guess I started to think about more after uh, Jeff Scott <clears throat> got let go at South Florida last year, was it's not just the head coach and his family that are, you know, dealing with um, – you know, the 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 fact that they've been let go and all that comes with that. It's also this guy and any head coach has an entire building that has bought into his culture and his messaging and is dependent on that guy, that guy at the top. And so I'm curious of how difficult it is for you as you're dealing with not just the the – the the sort of enormity of the you know your personal um the, the, what what affects just you but also you're probably trying to help a lot of people find work and get jobs can you maybe help understand and what what that's like just sort of sharing the difficulty I'm, of that end of it yeah i've really struggled with it and uh because especially at this level the group of 5 level you know you you because you can't pay assistant coaches, you know, very much money. So you're getting young guys that are just starting out in the profession or been in the profession, 
you know, two or three years. Yeah, I had Tommy West, you know, but I wasn't paying him much money. But, you know, he was on the back end of his career, you know, and he's going to retire. But the other guys, the young guys that are just getting started that, you know, now they got to go look for a job. It's going to be hard for them. And uh, because just like the players we get here, you know, you're not getting four and five star guys. You're getting two star guys that you got to develop for a couple years. And just like the coaches, you're getting young coaches because you can't pay them that you're developing them and helping them grow. And now all of a sudden, you know, they're out of a job. So yeah, it's hard. And uh, that's bothered me is probably more than me getting let go myself personally. Mm. I think the last time we spoke was about two years ago when some guy named Nick Eason from Auburn uh, took the Clemson job, took the defensive tackles job at Clemson. And, um, you and Nick are exceptionally tight, um, and I actually got to know Nick on a deeper level last spring when he sat down with me for about three hours to share his life story, which is, I mean, I don't, it's almost like I, you can't believe it that he suffered, you know, the trauma of, of 20 people, not one. Um, so just uh, interested to hear your thoughts on Nick and y'all, the closeness, the bond that y'all share. Uh, and just your 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 insights on him. Yeah, I love Nick Eason. I love him, you know, as a man, respect him as a coach. But, you know, when I went through Toombs County there recruiting him, he had a really, really low test score. And, uh, you know, didn't look like he was going to make it. All that, a lot of – nobody hardly recruited him. Uh but when I talked to him on the phone, and that was, again, pre where you could talk to him face-to-face like you can now. You know, when I talked to him on the phone, I told Coach West there's something about this guy. And, you know, he took the test again and got 20 points higher. You know, and I am keep talking to him, and everybody's telling me, Stock, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. He's not going to make it. He took it. He got 40 points higher. He took it again and got a hundred points higher. And I think he took it nine or 10 times. And he finally, you know, was getting close and they, and people kept telling me, stock, you're wasting your time that if he does make it, Georgia is going to come back in on him and a small town, Georgia kid is not going to leave the state of Georgia. He's going to go to Georgia if they want him because that's what most of them did back then. And I said, no, I've got a relationship with him. He's going to make it. So he made it. And, you know, I said, Nick, you're good, man. You made it. Da-da-da-da-da. And he said, I'm going to take it one more time because my goal is to make a 1,000. And I said, Nick, you don't need to. He said, no, I want to. I I set a goal to get a 1,000. And so he takes it again. He gets a 1,010 or whatever it was. And uh, But just – and then sure enough, Georgia comes in and offers him and all those other ones come back on him. But because I stayed on him when nobody did and we had a relationship, me and his mom, you know, me and his grandmother, his little brother, you know, it was it's recruiting back then is so much different. Now, now you just, you what's it going to cost NIL money? You need 300,000, a million. What's it going to cost? You, you don't, you don't have those relationships. You don't, 
writing letters and, and and developing a relationship with the mom and the grandmother and the family and everything like that. Now you, that's, that's the sad part of where recruiting is today, but I just love that kid. He's not a kid. I, I love that him as a man and, uh, you know, just his NFL career, his NFL coaching career, his college career. I know he's, he's made Clemson, he made Clemson better when he was a player there. And I know he's making Clemson and those kids that he coaches better now as a coach. So words, you know, I guess the three best words you can say is I love you. And, uh, I love that guy. I respect that man. And, uh, I think the world of him. And I guess y'all stayed close through the years. Did he, I guess he consulted with you when he was, Way in the decision whether to leave Auburn to come back to his alma mater? I don't think he weighed it. You know, <laughs> I, I called him, and uh, when I had heard about it, I said, Nick, have you called Dabo yet? Call him, tell him you need that, you want that job. Uh, do you want me to call somebody? He said, I think I'm all right. They, they reached out, and I said, Well, when are you going to tell him yes? And, uh, you know, so it was, you know, that deal wasn't any, he didn't need any, he didn't need, he didn't need me to talk him into going. And, uh, so I, I'm just glad it worked out for him. And, uh, you know, cause he's as, he's as good a man, uh, that you want, you want, he's who you want coaching your son. I think I also, one of the recent times I've talked to you was a couple of years ago when Graham Neff took over as AD and I called because I remembered uh, when he came here, I think I was talking to Russell Patterson. And Russell said, oh, man, they 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 love uh, – Stock loves Graham Neff up there at, at, at Middle Tennessee. I'm just curious for your thoughts on his rise to uh, one of the most prominent athletic director roles out there. No, it's – you know, you can see – you know, you can see young coaches and you can say, or you can see, start with players. You can see a, a freshman come in and you can see see pretty early that this guy's got it. He's got a chance to be an NFL guy if he'll work. You see young coaches. If they'll stay at it, they're going to be a superstar in the profession. Administrators, the same thing. And when I met Graham, he had come from Georgia Tech and he's a young guy and you could just tell immediately that he was going to be successful. And uh, so I'm not shocked. I'm not surprised. And, you know, when Terry Don left, uh, no, it wasn't Terry Don, but uh, Miami now. Yeah. Yeah. When he, when he left, you know, I called Graham. I said, I hope you're going to go after it. There's nothing I can do probably to help you. Uh, But if there is, you tell him to call me. And, uh, but you could see, yeah, I mean, he had the work ethic. He had the communication skills. He has the vision. He's a smart guy. He's a great communicator, great leader. You know, he's got all the intangibles that you want in a position as athletic director at a Power Five school. I have to ask you if you can confirm an anecdote that I heard from y'all's visit to Clemson in '09 for that opener. Uh, your kicker, your kickoff guy, was told. Do not Alan kick it. Gendro. Do not kick it to number twenty-eight. 
<laughs> CJ Spiller. He kicks it to CJ, takes it back to the house, and then he comes to the sideline and said, oh, was that Spiller? <laughs> no, that wasn't exactly okay. how it went. It was, you know, all summer, all camp, you know, we had practiced kicking away from him, kicking, you know, over here. And Kevin Youngblood, all my guys, you know, were at the game. And, and I told them before the game, I said, I'll bet you $100 that CJ doesn't return one for a touchdown against us today. <laughs> and uh, so we kick off, and sure enough, he kicks it over there to the right side, and CJ runs it back. And Alan Gendro, you know, he comes over. He's uh, our freshman kicker. And I said, what are you doing? I thought we practiced all summer of not kicking to him. He goes, Coach, I'm sorry, my gen- my adrenaline was just uh, too high. <laughs> and I said, Well, that's why we did. That's why we practiced not kicking to him. <laughs> that is great. Well, I've kept you for a yeah, long. I lost my I lost my bet to, to, <laughs> to blood too. You had to pay up. He hadn't he hadn't taken it yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've kept you for a long time. I don't know if there's any uh, anything we haven't covered that you want to that you want to dig into, but, um, this has been, this has been great. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you, Larry. And just tell all my pals back at Clemson, uh, have a Merry Christmas. You have a Merry Christmas and, and good luck in their bowl game and all that. And, uh, I'm always here if you ever need me. Well, great conversation. Uh, nobody asked me, Dabo certainly hasn't (laughs) asked me, but if Rick Stockstill wants to be an analyst somewhere, uh, Wow, I think he'd be a heck of an addition to to Dabo Sweeney's staff here at Clemson. Appreciate the support of our sponsors for helping make this happen. And of course, thanks to every one of you for hitting that play button every week. Greatly appreciate it. Everybody have a wonderful rest of the week.